Well, for the last eight weeks or so, we have been studying the book of Philippians, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this early church. And as we've seen, the theme of this letter is joy, how we find joy in the midst of a troubled world, when our circumstances are difficult, when uh, we are facing or dealing with terrible situations, how can we find and hold on to joy? I think it makes perfect sense then if that's the theme, if that's what we've kind of been centering on these past few weeks, that eventually we would get to a conversation about what it means to be content. How do we live a life of contentment in a world that can be harsh, in the midst of experiences and trials in life that challenge us? At some point, we're going to have to sort out what being content means. And so today we're going to look at the, actually the, the last few verses of the book of Philippians. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Philippians uh, chapter 4, starting around verse 10, it's also going to be on the screens for you today. But in this passage, Paul actually uses these words, I have learned the secret of being content. He's found it. And so when we hear that, we should, all of our ears should kind of perk up. Our hearts should perk up. If he's found the secret, we need to be listening. And I I hope that we can together discover what he is pointing to, what he has found, and hopefully we can find it for ourselves also. In some ways, I think we could agree that the human condition, the great human problem that we face, that we've all been facing for century upon century, is really this unending search for contentment, the constant looking for things that will satisfy us or make us happy, make us content. Some of you may know who Merle Haggard was, great country music icon, had 38 albums appear on Billboard's country music top top 10 charts, 38 singles to number one. He also had five wives and spent some time in San Quentin prison But he said this about himself, and I just think this quote is remarkable. He said, there's a restlessness in my soul that I've never conquered, not with motion, marriages, or meaning. It's still there to a degree. It will be till the day I die. This restlessness, this constant motion in life, so many of us feel that because we're experiencing a lack of contentment, maybe for who we are, maybe in what we've become. And in a unique way, I think, as we get further along into this kind of modern world, the discontentment that we live with um, begins to take even a different kind of shape in which we are no longer just satisfied with kind of ordinary things. We're constantly looking for the extraordinary. We're less and less satisfied with just the ordinary. Joe Queenan is a writer for the New York Times and GQ magazine, and he recently wrote this, and he criticized kind of this need in our culture to uh, never be able to accept the ordinary. He said this, we insist that every experience be a watershed, every meal extraordinary, every concert superb, every sunset meta-celestial. Nothing can ever again be exactly what it was in the first place. 
ordinary. And then the great Christian author, Michael Horton, uh, read that and responded to it in this way. He said, today we feel the pressure to have our weddings look like the cover of a bridal magazine or a movie set. Our marriages have to be made in heaven, even though we're very much on earth. Our presentations at work have to dazzle. Our kids have to make the dean's list and get into the best graduate schools. Nothing short of brilliant and groundbreaking will satisfy if you want a good job. When we do stop and smell the roses, it has to be an unforgettable package at an amazing resort. It's not enough to simply enjoy recreation at the public park any longer. We all want extreme sports. That's what interests us. It's not enough, he's saying. The question that all of us, if we're going to wrestle with contentment, what it means to be content is when will it ever be enough? Are we ever going to feel that? And so we are on often this constant search for contentment. And I want us to recognize a few things today on this ongoing search for contentment. If we're going to, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, approach this search for contentment differently, if we're going to let the gospel inform how we do it, if we're going to let Jesus inform how we go out on this search, then we're going to need to recognize a couple of things. And the first is this, that Christianity, following Jesus, is not about living a life of self-sufficiency. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. Right, this, the reason I said that this search for contentment is kind of the big human problem, part of our human condition, is because that was the original story with Adam and Eve. In the garden, created by God, they were given everything. Right, perfect harmony with God. And yet temptation came in and discontentment came in with it. And they wanted more. They wanted to be like God himself. They wanted to be self-sufficient. And with that, sin came into their lives and into the world. And from there, throughout history, time and time again, story after story, we read about people being discontent with life and discontent with God and then setting out to determine for themselves what will make them content, what will make them happy. And I don't think I have to give you many examples to see the results of that, right? Sin has caused such a great separation between us and God that this quest for contentment always is elusive. We never quite get there. And because that separation exists, God, who is holy, had to do something about it. That sin that separates us can no longer just be there between us. God had to punish that sin. And so in other words, our desire for self-sufficiency is actually the bad news of the gospel. And when we hear that, we may be tempted to think, well, if that's true, how can I fix the problem? Tell me how I can go out and do what I need to do to bridge that gap, to make things okay with God and the people around me. But that approach doesn't lead us anywhere closer to true contentment either. The second thing we need to recognize is that Christianity is not about living a life of determination, of just willing ourselves to do better, to fix our problems. We need a savior. We need Jesus. 
And so though there is the bad news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that into that problem, into that separation that our sin has caused, God came to us in Jesus. And he lived the perfect life that we could never live. He followed all of God's commands. He fulfilled God's law. And in doing that, he became the perfect sacrifice for our sin when he allowed himself to be arrested and tried and crucified punished in our place so that our sin could be cleansed, so that we could be brought back into relationship with God. You see, our stern determination can't fix that. Only Jesus can. And when he rose from the dead three days later, what happens is not only is our sin cleansed, but we now take on a new identity, an identity of new life in Christ, which means now, that though we have been on a constant search for contentment and coming up empty, because of our life in Christ now, we have a new potential to find true contentment in Christ. And so it's not about self-sufficiency, it's not about stern determination. Christianity, following Jesus, is about living a life united to Christ. United to Christ. And if you believe that, if you come to a place to really embrace that, that you are in Christ, always and forever united to him, well, then we're gonna see where it leads. If that's true, then now you and I are ready to set out looking for contentment in a completely different way. And that's where I want us to go this morning, to really consider how living in Christ leads us to contentment and then produces three specific results. And so look with me at the first one. If we come to a place to see more contentment in our life, it's going to do this. It's going to produce this. It's going to lead us to a generous life. Look with me at verse 15 of Philippians 4. Paul writes, As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. You see, the Philippians were a people that had been through a lot. This little church had gone through so much. That's why Paul is constantly encouraging them to, to lift up their heads, to be filled with joy even in the trials that they face. But even in the midst of all that difficulty, they were the ones, they were the church that were actively giving to Paul. They were sending their resources. They were doing all that they can and Paul is recognizing their generosity. And in fact, now that he's in prison writing this, he's actually counting on that happening again. I think it's always important to remember, you imagine the undertaking that would have meant in the first century to, for them to send resources like that across the world, how long it would have taken, all the effort to be generous. It wasn't like today where you just you know, text message $10 to this charity. Being generous then meant your entire life was marked by generosity. This is how they lived, and Paul recognizes it. I'm sure many of you were, uh, as I was, uh, during the hurricane a couple of weeks ago, just 
I have this tendency of getting glued to the coverage, right? Before, a couple of days before, and then during, and then after. And a couple of days after the storm, I was reading an article in the Miami Herald about a South Beach restaurant. A couple of this happened in a number of places in South Florida where these restaurants had all of this food and no power, and so they no longer could hold on to their food. They had to do something with it. And this one restaurant in South Beach had like $50,000 worth of expensive meats and seafood, and they were scrambling to find out what they were going to do. And then they found out about these two neighbors in the West Grove area of Miami who regularly held this neighborhood cookout. And the restaurant came together with these two friends and decided that they were going to have an entirely different kind of cookout. So residents who were glistening from the late afternoon, you know, heat, many still without power, only, you know, after eating the, the hurricane food that they'd supplied, right, standing there in their shorts and their flip-flops in this park, they gathered for this incredible cookout. About 400 neighbors, most of whom were from the nearby Kingsway Apartments, which is often referred to as the projects in that area, lined up at 3.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. And on the menu... Filet mignon, brisket, sea bass, octopus, lobster, lamb shanks, Chateaubriand. Did I say that right? And more. And Francesca Gray was one who was there, and she said she was there for the lobster. She said, we've been eating Vienna sausages right from the can. Her four children, her four children under 10, raced around her at Elizabeth Virick Park which was quickly cleared of fallen oak and hickory branches to stage the grilling. The corner store is out of supplies, she said. You can't get ice anywhere, so this is really nice. Oh, and they're on top of their stuff, too. The octopus is really good. Clearly, this was no ordinary cookout. And I would wager to guess that the owners of that restaurant were pretty content with their decision of what they did with that food. They were content with how it was used. And sometimes, you know, I think being generous is spontaneous. Sometimes it just comes together. But more often than not, generosity is a choice. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle choice to be content with what you have and then to give to others out of what you have, to be generous with others. And friends, that comes with living in Christ. That since you and I have been given all that we need, the riches of heaven, that he has given everything to us, including eternal life in his family. Because that's true. We're not left to go hungry, to go without. We are his children who now, for all eternity, stand before an incredible feast. Nothing else in this world can satisfy like that can. Everything else pales in comparison. And so to see how generous he is to us leads us to be content and then in turn be generous to others. And so contentment leads to a generous life. But secondly, contentment, um, living in Christ, which leads us to contentment, will produce a disciplined life. Look with me at verse 10 and 11 of Philippians 4. Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, 
and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. See, Paul's, once again, leaning on his experience. A lot of the times in his life, he's had plenty, he's had much. Other times, he's had nothing, including this time when he's writing from prison with nothing. But yet he says, through all of this, I have, and this is the key part, I have learned to be content. Which means that being content takes what? Time and experience. It means making certain decisions that will lead to being content. And I want to just highlight maybe two things that can help us think about how Discipline can and needs to come into our life if we're going to be living and moving towards godly contentment. The first is this, to know, to simply know, and this is hard, when enough is enough. Right? The doctors are always telling us about the way we eat, right? that you should stop right? before you know that you've had enough. When it comes to our finances, to be able to recognize and pinpoint right then and there, you know what, this is enough. This is all I need. When, when is enough square footage, enough square footage for our house? When can we say, yes, now, this is enough, this is all we need? That is an active decision-making process that we can enter into if we're going to see contentment come deeper into our lives. And a big part of the Christian life is coming to that place where we realize that we have enough because Jesus has given us all that we need. The second, and this is just as difficult, is to decide to not covet. To decide, to actively make the decision that I am not going, no longer going to covet what others have around me, whether it's my neighborhood, friends, in the workplace. But that takes practice, and that takes a process to be able to say, I'm no longer going to live a life that is actively, constantly looking around at what other people have. I'm not going to do that. Because hear this, the opposite of contentment is coveting what others have. It simply is. And Paul had to learn these things over and over again, but the encouragement is that he's learned it, that he has come to a place where that discipline has paid off that has led to him saying, I, I know what it is to be with and without and I am content no matter what. And so the question we need to ask, maybe all of us need to kind of enter into some kind of spiritual self-audit, right? God, am I content with what you've given to me? Where am I discontent? Is my discontentment driving everything in my life and how much am I coveting what others have? And whatever the answers to those questions may be, we should be encouraged that Paul is saying you can come to a place in plenty or in want when you can truly be content. And so living in Christ leads us to a generous life and a disciplined life, but finally it can lead us to a trustful life. You know, there are two verses in this passage um, that are very popular that even if you didn't grow up in the church or maybe you're new to Christianity or faith or new to reading the Bible, you've probably heard one of these at least because it's used so widely. 
But both of them speak directly to what living in Christ can lead us to, a more trustful life. Look with me at verse 13. It says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And sometimes we hear this verse maybe in another translation where it says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And though this is a simple and straightforward verse, I think this is a verse that we can easily confuse. We can get trapped into thinking that this is a motivational phrase, right? Only meant for inspiration so that we can kind of tag it on to our achievement purposes, to conquer whatever's in front of us, to scale the mountain, to win the game, to kind of cheer ourselves up. And I think there are certainly aspects of that verse where that could be true. But when I read this, I can't help but think that this is all about trust. All about trust. If you say and believe that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, then you are trusting that he will come through. You are believing and trusting that his strength is enough. And to come to that place is to truly live a trustful life and experience more contentment. And I know that many of you are doing that right now. Whatever you're facing, you're going through different situations, you're having to rely no longer upon your strength because it hasn't worked, and now you're relying only on the strength of the Lord. And so I think that verse invites us in to trust Jesus, to rest in him, to trust him that he has everything in control. And that other verse that's often used from verse 19 of chapter 4 tells us why we can trust. It says, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. There it is. The Christian life is the contented life because we trust that it's on his strength that we have all that we need, that we can do all things, that all of our needs will be met. And so it's not, it can't be about our self-sufficiency. It can't be about our self-determination to fix everything ourselves and find contentment on our own. It leads us to rest in him, to trust him, I think that's where the contented Christian life leads us to, more and more to rest. And I don't know about you, but the last month or so with all these storms and trying to hit the reset button in life, right? Rest has been hard to find. But the place that the Christian lives is in simple trust and rest in Jesus because he gives us his strength and he meets all of our needs. My uh, mentor and friend, John Swinton, uh, tells a remarkable story in his latest book that I want to close with this morning. I've, I've mentioned uh, L'Arche here before, I think. Um, L'Arche is a network of communities around the world where people with uh, mild and profound intellectual disabilities live in relationship and community with uh, typical people. They share this communal life. It's a beautiful thing that's almost in every country of the world now. Just a picture of the gospel of Jesus. And John tells the story of a man named Danny who lives with Down syndrome at L'Arche in Trostley, France. Danny also had a serious heart condition, 
One day, Danny returned to his community after visiting the cardiologist in Paris. And one of his friends asked him where he'd been. To see the doctor, replied Danny. And what did the doctor do? His friend asked. His friend smiled. Danny replied, he looked into my heart. And his friend smiled. And what did he see there, Danny? Danny paused and looked intently at his friend. He saw Jesus, replied Danny. And what was Jesus doing? Danny paused and looked away. Then he said, he was resting. Danny smiled and looked away. John writes, for Danny, having Jesus in his heart was not simply a useful way of describing and illustrating the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is what we believe. For Danny, Jesus was literally in his heart and he was resting. I ask the readers of this book, he writes, is Jesus resting in your heart? I wonder whether when God looks into our heart, he finds peace or whether all that he can be found is our man-made anxiety. Danny, a man with Down syndrome who has a heart problem, someone whom some would not want to exist and others might consider a waste of time and resources, turns out to be the gentle bearer, I love this, of deep revelation. Jesus desires to rest in our hearts. Friends, that's what God desires. That is the key to contentment, the secret to contentment, that God desires to rest in us and in turn invites us to rest in him. That is what living in Christ brings. Only there. And so let's rest in that today together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we get stuck in this life, searching after all these different things that we think will lead us to a more contented life or make us happy or satisfy us. Lord, we try them on like jackets, seeing if they'll fit. And every time we just have to throw them away because Lord, we know that they don't lead us to a deep contentment in you. God, I pray that wherever we may be, that you would help us to see that because of what you have done in Jesus, you have invited us into a life where we are always and forever united to you. That nothing now, because of your love for us, can separate us from you. And Lord, may that produce in us generosity, discipline, and would it help us to trust you more and more. Lord, that all of that would lead us to the secret of contentment, that it is found in resting in you. God, that's our prayer. Help us through your spirit to believe it today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.